Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Ken Ritter is a former management consultant, corporate executive, and startup owner. After successfully exiting his first company, Kent turned his focus to real estate. Now Kent is the CEO of Hudson Investing, a multifamily investment firm which helps busy professionals scale and diversify their real estate portfolio with cash-flowing, wealth-building assets. Kent, welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Thanks for having me, Corey. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, listen, I, you know, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you as well. And, you know, obviously, uh, there's uh, some interesting things going on in the real estate market, and we want to talk about those deals. I know you had an exit as well. Uh, but before we get into all of that good stuff and what you're doing now, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because, uh, I don't know, Mike, I'm guessing it's not a real estate investor, but you tell me. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> Man, if I, if I was 8, I, I probably wanted to be, I probably wanted to be like an archaeologist, astronaut, uh, doctor, you know, that, that owned my own business. I probably wanted to be all that. And, and, and that owned your own business, huh? Oh, that's it. Yeah. 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 That was the interesting thing was, was I always wanted to own my own business uh, ever since I was a little kid. And I don't necessarily know why, because didn't really have any entrepreneurs in my family. Yeah. I don't really know where I got that itch from. And, it, and, you know, it was kind of before there was this really this term entrepreneur, but yeah. I just, I knew I always wanted to have my own thing. I just always thought that was like the pinnacle of accomplishment, I guess. It's funny you say that because I was, I was the same way and had no models in my immediate family, you know, mm-hmm. for that. Everybody worked for, you know, somebody. So yeah. I had one uncle, I had one uncle, I, I think, you know, uh, looking back who, who had his own business. And I thought that was pretty cool. Like the best thing I had, I think I had one of my buddies, uh, his, his uncle owned uh, uh, dry cleaners and maybe like a car wash and things. Right. And I was like, yeah. And those are now I know those are great cash flowing businesses. And I was like, this guy can just do whatever he wants. So, you know, whenever he wants and he's taking his fish and all this stuff. So maybe that was it. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> all right. And one other question looking back, what was the first deal of any type that you can remember doing? It could be something small when you were a kid or early in your career, you know, whatever comes to mind, like a first deal. You know, I, I can remember, I remember selling a bike when I was like 13 uh-huh. and I remember, I remember like negotiating with my friends and, and like just being like a hard ass about it, you know, like, <laughs> and I remember my friend getting mad at me and like walking away from the table and, and oh, wow. we had, you know, we had to, we had to like come back together <laughs> after that. We, I think we got, we got a deal done and we stayed friends. So it worked out, but I remember right. <laughs> like it was a little tense there. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Those early experience. Okay, so we, we're going to jump into and spend a lot of our time on the real estate side because that's what you focus in now. But I know, you know, you have the management consulting business, you did sell it. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, so why don't we just uh, 
Was there any, like, one big lesson that you got out of that experience that maybe you still, you know, you apply in, in, in what you do now? The thing that really sticks out to me is if you're trying to maximize your value, you, you got to go to market. And, and what I mean by that, so, so here's, here's why, because we actually, the reason that we sold our business is because we, we got a couple of unsolicited offers. And kind of, you get like one unsolicited offer and you're kind of like, oh yeah, whatever. You get another one, it kind of makes you think like, well, maybe we should explore this, right? right. So we could have taken either of those offers, right? And, and probably never known any better and been fine, but we knew enough to we actually went out, we, we hired an investment bank, we went through the whole marketing process. We actually ended up at the end of the day with 11 LOIs. Wow. And so we had our, our pick of the litter. And so we were able to negotiate from a very strong position and we were able to really maximize the value and we were able to get a better multiple for, for that type of business than, than typically people get. And so the, the lesson is, yeah, if you want to maximize your value, go to market. And I take that to real estate because like, I love buying properties uh, direct to seller because there's no broker in between. There's there's a lot less negotiation, but I would never sell uh, on that side. You know, directly to somebody. I, I always take it to market because of that exact same reason. If, if it's out to the market, you can create this competitive environment. You're going to maximize your value, and I mean, at the end of the day, it's what we're trying to do for our investors. So, I think that's a good lesson. Yeah, it's it's interesting this tension, right? Because especially in real estate. You know, one of the things I like about real estate, and I've dabbled in, you know, I've done some investments. In fact, I've done more than dabbled. It's not my main business, but, you know, yeah. I've had a couple of funds, you know, over the years where we put in our own money, raised some capital from others and did some, mm -hmm. you know, uh, everything from a couple of small conduct conversions to some multis. Um, but I don't do it regularly and I'm, I don't have anything active right now. But the thing I always like about real estate is that it's an inefficient market especially on the residential side, right? And yes. for, for audiences that, you know, for people in the audience that don't maybe don't know what I mean by that, is it's that, um, like, I have a lot of insight into the stock market. I know, I know, you know, a lot of people who are on various aspects of it from the floor, from the old guys on the floor of New York Stock Exchange to, you know, all, all you know, the people who wrote the program trading systems for First Boston or whatever. I mean, it's amazing how, highly technological, efficient, big players, right, you know, are in there. Mm -hmm. You know, high-end commercial real estate has come that way, right? Cap rates are pretty tight. But, you know, when you get into other aspects of the real estate market, like, so I, I have a personal belief that I can't compete as an individual in the stock market, right? So I invest money in a diversified portfolio and leave it mm -hmm. in there for the long term and blah, 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 because there are other people who have high technology, inside information, contacts, whatever that I can't compete with. Right. Um, but, but real estate, certainly on the residential side, is, is, is really much less efficient. It's not like that. I always find that it's, yeah. you, know, you can compete better. Yeah. And, and you can find value. Like you really can find value. Well, I mean, I can tell you an example of, of a deal that we're, we're working on right now. It was a marketed deal, meaning a broker had it listed. Yeah. But I'll just be honest with you. The broker wasn't very good and yeah, the broker's yeah. network isn't very big. I mean, I mean really, it, that's what it's all about is it's, it's about the broker's network because if they're, that's where you can find deals because there's just deals that people don't know about, right? Because a lot of these deals aren't on a national platform, you know, somewhere like the stock market where everyone's trading all over and everybody knows about all the deals. And so um, I think we were able to get a great deal on the property just because of, of bad marketing and because not a lot of people knew about it. Yeah. And that's, that's sort of where I was going with it. You know, when, yeah. when you said like, you know, this tension between wanting to buy off market, but sell on market, right. That's right. Yes. Um, you know, it's, it's because of that, right. I mean, you know, you want to, um, 
you know, and it's interesting. Everybody's always looking for those, those, you know, I know all the buyers I know is looking for, you know, we were looking for off market deals, right? Cause yeah, because the, you know, the on market deals have more competition and then, you know, there's, and there's greater efficiencies in them. So, so, and that, so that's kind of key to our strategy really. Okay. And that, yeah. that's why we stay. That. So, so we intentionally stay under 200 units because when you, when yeah. you go above 200 units from, from multifamily standpoint, that's when you attract the the bigger players. You attract the re, you know, the bigger players, REITs, uh, PE firms. Yep. They only go 200 units plus. So we work in this pocket of like 50 to 200 units where it's yep. it's too big for like a mom and pop or even like a group of buddies to come together and really do successfully. Uh, we we buy from a lot of those groups and then. Yep too little for the big guys to pay attention to. And so in that we're able to, it's an even more inefficient market in that space. And so we're, we're a sophisticated player in that market. And because of that, I think we're able to, to find a lot of really good deals and, and with a lot of meat on the bones still. So like we're yeah. strategically trying to avoid that competition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and that really makes sense. So let's talk about, you know, you use the phrase, a lot of meat on the bone, right? So like yeah. what what causes there to be meat on the bone, right? Is it because I mean the easy answer is all right, maybe somebody's underpricing their their building because they don't know the market as well and they haven't yeah. put it on the market, whatever. Okay, so yeah. we have that. But there's yeah. other stuff that creates meat on the bone, right? Where you see opportunities maybe that other that the existing owner or maybe other buyers don't see. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and one of the I probably my favorite thing about commercial real estate, there's a lot of them. Probably my favorite is this idea of forced appreciation. Meaning that if I can come in and I can increase the the net operating income, then I can increase the value of the property. I mean, by a multiple of right now in the market, 20 to 25 X. For every dollar I increase the income, I'm increasing the value by 20 to $25. And so that's what I mean by meat on the bone is if, if I can come in and I can solve problems, whether it's my favorite are management inefficiencies, because I know we just get the old management out, put our management in and boom, we solve the problem. Uh, but also just a lot of times these properties are undercapitalized, meaning the current owner, especially if it's like a mom and pop style, they don't have a war chest to pull from to keep the property uh, fixed up and do all the deferred maintenance and, and even make improvements, right? They're just pulling money from operations. And so, we come in, we're able to infuse the property with capital. We're able to renovate units. We're able to take care of deferred maintenance, you know, de-risk the property by, you know, putting new roofs on or fixing the plumbing, all these things. And in doing that, we're able to increase the rents yeah. and decrease expenses in many, many cases, all that to increase the NOI, which is going to drive up valuation. So we can actually, so we're not just relying on the market. Like when you buy a single family house, it's only it's a market based valuation, so it's only worth as much as what the other houses around it have sold for, right? Yeah, yeah. With commercial real estate, it, it's an income based valuation. So if we increase that income, we increase how much it's worth, and that's that's really the beauty of of being able to control your own destiny with commercial real estate. Yeah, in that way, it's similar to buying and selling businesses in that the, the more efficiently they run, not only do you make more cash flow, uh, you know, at the time, but when you mm -hmm. exit. That business or sell that property, you're going to get you know a multiple on that cash flow or yep, EBITDA yep. or whatever you know or net cash flow whatever depending on what you're selling how it's yeah, defined. Yeah. But it basically comes down to you know uh, right uh, revenue minus yeah. expenses and um, no yeah hundred percent and, and, and there's a multiple on that right which is hundred so, percent so every dollar you increase cash flow like you said right now you're getting twenty twenty five bucks uh, call it yeah. Right? 
Yeah. So it's beautiful because like, like little stuff adds up, you know, where, where like we will, for example, we have a, a program on all, all of our properties where we actually install uh, fiber optic internet on all the properties. And we, and so we inevitably become the, the internet service provider. And it, it's like a wholesale retail model where we're paying, you know, a certain price for, for it. And then we're charging the residents at a market rate. Um, and it creates a spread of typically, anywhere from 35 to $50 per unit a month. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when you think about it, you're like, oh, okay, you know, maybe that's right, not that much. doesn't sound like a lot, right. But you think about it over 100 or 150 units and over 12 months, and then you multiply whatever that number is by 20 or 25, and it becomes meaningful dollars. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And you do that with like four or five different things, and all of a sudden, like you're talking real money. Yeah, talking real money, exactly. So, so... Uh, Question on that then, um, uh, in terms of your approach on the multis, because you know there are some there are some uh, investors who are buy and hold. There are some who are you know you know buy improve, bring mm-hmm. up the rent roll or whatever, and then and then sell. Some do a combination. What what's your focus? Yeah, we we kind of sit in the middle where we are. You know, our typical hold time is somewhere between. Uh, somewhere right around three years is probably mm-hmm. our average. I mean, we're we're targeting a three to five year exit. Typically, yep. when we're uh, when we're underwriting deals, and just because of market conditions, we we've had some properties that have exited in in two years, just because right. we, we knew we could. I mean, we could hit our five year numbers in two years, and we said, okay, let's let's chalk up a win. But um, but yeah, so we're we're essentially buy, fix up, hold for a little bit, right. and then and then sell. Right, right, because you're gonna fix it up. You want you want again then get the. The rent roll for X amount of time, people. That's see right. Yeah, you're gonna at those gonna new look, numbers, and then yeah, exactly right, exactly right. Because we're gonna, you know, we're gonna either sell or refinance based on uh, kind of the last three months of operations. So we get that going, and then you know we're able to seriously increase the value. So let's take it back for a second and talk about how you you got here, because in our you know pre-call, uh, you know you have, you've had a journey that is, you know, somewhat uh, common for successful folks in this industry, right? Uh, where, you know, you started, right, on the on the individual home buying, you know, buying, buying flip, mm-hmm. right? Flip, we have flip yeah. uh, market yeah. uh, and then have evolved into doing bigger deals, multi-deals, and, the, and then even some ground up, uh, I know, yeah. you know you mentioned. So let's talk about yeah. that journey a little bit. Like, you know, uh, why, you know, uh, it's, you know, in terms of getting your feet wet, what you learn from those small deals, why you move away from them. And as I'm assuming yeah. you're probably not doing single family homes anymore. Um, so yeah, talk, talk about the journey. Yes. No. Yeah. I'd be happy to, because I think, I think there are some good insights here. If there's people that are, want to follow this journey, I can help maybe short circuit some, some of these things because, because I had to learn it. So I started out, the first thing that I started out doing was, was actually building out a note portfolio. So I was selling houses on contract and I was holding the debt. And, and I was only doing that because a family friend, that was his strategy. And that was kind of my way into real estate. Right. And then my, the big eye-opening moment was about a year after I, I, I created one of those contracts, but a year after uh, one of the folks sold the house and they bought the house for 70,000, they sold it for 140. And I got the, the HUD statement, the closing statement, because I'm the debt, right? And I'm looking at it, I'm like, man, this guy just doubled his money in a year. I mean, hardly did anything, right? And I'll, I'm getting my loan paid back. Well, like all well and good, but like this guy doubled his money. I was like, okay, so I got to get out of the debt game. I need to start buying assets. So then we got into 
because I had a friend who was do, who was doing he had done fix and flips for about twelve years prior to when we started doing it together. So I'm like, okay, you know what you're doing. I've got capital. Let's let's get in. Let's scale this this business, right? Well. I won't get into it all, but a ton of lessons learned of why it's really tough to scale a fix and flip business, uh, you know, and manage. Cause when you, when you go from your own crew to having to manage, you know, four or five crews, that's a totally different, uh, totally different environment. And so really the fix and flips, I mean, I was, I was also looking for something that was passive, right. For, for the most part and a fix and flip. I mean, that's a full-time day job yep. and it's ordinary income. It's not capital gains. And so the tax treatment isn't as good. And yep. so, wow, that was, I, I learned a lot of good lessons. It, it wasn't scalable tax treatment, all those things. I realized this is not what I want to be in. So at the same time, we were, we were uh, building up a, a small rental portfolio too of like singles and, and duplexes because we were essentially either holding them or we were, or we were flipping them as we fixed them up. Yep. And the pro I mean, and that, that gets a little better, right? That gets you into capital gains uh, that gets you uh, more passive income. But the problem with a single family house is if your tenant's gone, you're on the hook for that mortgage. Like, like there's no, there's nobody else. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. It's binary. Like, it's ones and zeros. It's like, exactly like yes in, or no. multi, in, in most of our multifamily properties. I mean, cause we do this analysis, you know, we could drop the residency or the occupancy to 70, 75% and still be able to make our mortgage payment. Right. Like yeah, that's yeah. our break even. So it's a lot different. And, and then you start doing the math on how many houses you actually have to acquire to get to the cash flow you want to get to. And like, that's a hell of a lot of houses. And once you realize how hard it is to buy a house, you, you start to realize. And so anyway, uh, so we got out of that. So I was really looking, and I think this is part of my consulting mindset. I was always looking for something that's scalable, that I could build a model and grow. And none of those things fit that. And so that's when I, I really learned about multifamily. It's like, okay, well, instead of buying a hundred houses, I can buy a hundred units under one roof and do one transaction. Well, that seems scalable. Um, and still though, I had in my mind, like, I'm going to like, at this point, I'm not bringing in any other investors. This is all my own money or yep. like my partner's money. Yep. Uh, and then I had a mentor step in at, at the right time. I met a person and they're like, okay, well, cool. You go buy, say buy a 50 unit. You got all your eggs in one basket in this 50 unit. You're, you're, you're still a landlord. You know, they're like, I don't think that's what you want. And they, they opened my eyes to what, like a syndication model yeah. and the ability to bring other people into the deal in that way, diversify my own funds, also use other people's funds and, and be able to create a portfolio instead of having all your money in one property. And, and from there, like the light bulb really went off for me of like, this is what I want to do. And, and so, so have you been syndicating, have you been uh, doing deal by deal raising capital, or have you put together a, a fund? Uh, you know uh, where where you doing multiple properties? No, we we haven't done a fund. We've done portfolios, but it's always been identified properties. Yeah. So we've never done a semi blind or like a blind fund. It's something that we. Uh, it's something on the horizon. I, I think. Mm -hmm. I think it's like a natural evolution. But I also like the individual properties. And I think a lot of our investors do because they can touch and feel and see exactly what they're getting. You know, so there's there's pros yeah. and cons. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. Uh, they, yeah, they're definitely pros and cons. I mean, um, you know, we were and and again, uh, you know, we, we did a couple of funds a long time ago, and uh, yeah. so I, I'm not. But um, but what motivated me, and we did our funds uh, that were just you know a, a blind fund, and and it's hard to raise money that way because they're they're just trusting you, right? They they can't evaluate right. a deal. But on the flip side, it, what it solved for, and this is the one thing it does solve for, is that. 
there were a couple of deals that were the kind of deals where you needed to move today. Like yeah. where that opportunity was there. Yeah. And even, even spending a couple of weeks, you know, putting capital together, you know, uh, mm-hmm. could cost you the deal. And once I lost out on two of those that I knew were going to be home runs, right? Yeah. Just I, yeah. I, they were big enough where I didn't have, you know, uh, my own capital to fund them all. And, you know, and, and one, I came close, scrambling, you know, get the money and, and you know, someone else swooped in there. You know, yeah. that, that was my frustration that had me, uh, you know, the, that, that had me. Really- I know exactly what you're talking about. And, and you know, I part of my story that we, we didn't hit on a, a ton in my journey was, um, you know, I, I, I went to really work at one of my mentors, private equity firms for, for about 15 months and kind of learn, learn the game from the inside. They have about 20,000 units. And, and that was the model that they worked in, right? And they had that war chest there so they could just execute quickly and they could just beat everybody to, to closing. And that's a right. huge deal. And so I definitely understand uh, the value in, in being able to just, I mean, because that's really at the end of the day, what, what, what matters to the broker who really is going to drive or steer a lot of those decisions is your speed to, to close and the surety of execution. Yeah. Yeah. But listen, I, I mean, there's, you know, you've been very successful. Plenty of people do, you know, deal the deal and there are a big advantage to that because, you know, you have a broader pool of investors because you're not asking them to just say, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of like, you know, I mean, a lot of them have run into trouble more recently now. These SPACs, you know, uh, these, uh, you right. know, uh, in the public uh, company market where they say, hey, we're going to, you know, we're basically going to take over a public company. You're going to invest in it and, and then we'll decide what we're going to do with your money right. <laughs> as opposed to investing in an operating company. Uh, you you know, know, and I think that I, I think there's just been there's just so much dry powder and there's just so much money searching for yield that that kind of stuff 100%. works in that environment. Right. I think as interest rates are starting to squeeze people, I think is, you know, I, I think we're, we'll probably see less of that. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com assessment. That's coreycupfer.com assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So let's talk about that. Let's transition to what we're seeing because, yeah, obviously, you know, in, in the real estate market, in the corporate market, everywhere, there's just been, I mean, the abundance of capital, uh, you know, and money, like you said, you know, powder the burn, you know, has yeah. been crazy over the last number of years. Valuations on the corporate and the real estate side have gone, you know, you know, I, I've been saying for several years now that there's actually we're in a time when no good deal will, you know, will not get funded. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, there are obviously there are still deals that are not fundable because they're not, they're not good deals. They're not good no, deals. Yeah. No, no, no good deal. will get, you know, right, um, right. but we have some signs and listen, I'm not asking you, we, none of us have a crystal ball who knows what's going to happen, but you know, what are you seeing so far? Obviously we've got interest rates starting to push up and the fed has indicated they're going to continue to go up. Um, you know, we have some, you know, the stock market's been bumpy lately and, you know, so, yeah. and, and overall concerns about, are we going to a recession, blah, blah, blah. All right. I guess the first question is, have you seen any specific impacts yet in, in, in your market? And one of we use is an yeah. opportunity to talk about what your market is. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and then, you know, to the extent you have any views on, you know, what might happen going forward, I'd love to hear. 
I think there's so much to, to unpack here. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm an econ guy. I love talking about this stuff and, and, and trying to follow it and really understand what's going on. So I, I think a, a couple of things that, that I think are valuable to point out, and, and I guess, um, well, well, we'll kind of bring it all back together to my market. But I think, I think one thing that's really valuable to, to point out is, you know, interest rates are, are what everybody's kind of grabbing onto right now. That's what's hitting the headlines. That, that's like the FUD. That's the fear, uncertainty, doubt that like, I mean, the ma- mainstream media like pumps because that's what people are going to listen to, right? But, and that's what I, I'm having tons of investor calls about, hey, interest rates are going up, what's going to happen? The, the thing is, is there's so many other levers in commercial real estate besides interest rates that cre- that create or, or destroy value, right? Okay. Interest rates is just one of them. So my, my take on interest rates is that like, yes, they're going to go up. We've been in, in an unprecedented environment for the last 10 years of zero, like zero low. borrowing I mean, rates, right? Totally artificially low. I mean, it's, right. people don't it, right. realize so, the, the anomaly was not that they're going up. The anomaly was that they were so low for so long. A hundred percent. And at a certain point, you got to get off the, the merry-go-round, right? And so so interest rates are going to go up. And, and, and if you look at like forward curves uh, for SOFR, which is a rate that a lot of our variable loans are benchmarked to. They look, it looks like the prediction, at least in forward curves are, are always wrong, but it's the best info we have that they're going to peak kind of next summer and then come down and kind of normalize. Right. Um, yeah. And so what, what we've done is we've just really in our underwriting, we underwrite to that forward curve. So yeah. as long as rates do what we think they're going to do, yeah. we're fine with that. Like, because we like the deal at that. Right. And then yeah. what we do on top of that, is we put a rate cap kind of just above where that curve peaks so that if, if we're, we're, we've got an insurance policy to protect against the downside, right? So if rates go up higher than we're predicting, we're protected. And so, so, so that's kind of how we're hedging our, our risk there. But I think the deal has to be good. Like, I don't think you should be buying like in the money caps because you have to keep your interest rate at a certain level. If the deal doesn't work, if the interest rate moves up, a couple of points. I mean, it's still like a 6% interest rate. It's not a crazy rate, right? right. I know that right. doesn't work if you're buying like a 3% cap rate deal, which like people have been, but like in the Midwest where we are, I mean, we're still relatively uh, conservative in that way. So, so the reason I say all that is, is the way we've, we haven't had much of an impact. We, we are, uh, I guess, more conscious about our rate caps and, and, and making sure that we're capping in the appropriate place and things. But but we've always underwritten to those curves. And, and so we, we've always kind of operated in that way. Here, here's something I want to point out though, because it was pointed out to me and I think it's super interesting because I think it's a, a really common misconception to say that just because interest rates go up, that cap rates have to follow. Um, they're not correlated. And, and there's, a, there's, an econo- there's an economist that, that I really like, his name is Peter Lindman and he's professor at Wharton, I believe, but he follows the commercial real estate market. I subscribed to his newsletter and, and he actually took it a, a level deeper and he said, you know, it's not actually that cap rates uh, correlated with interest rates. What they're correlated with is the amount of money that's chasing deals. And when interest rates are lower, money's cheaper and there's more money. The yeah. thing that's interesting about right now is that whether interest rates go to 6% or not, there's still so much money out there that's trying to chase real estate that I think that's going to 
from a valuation standpoint, I think that's just going to kind of bull over wherever the interest rates go. And I I don't really see cap rates moving with with interest rates in a meaningful way. So, because, I mean, people tell me all the time, well, you know, interest rates go up, cap rates have to move up. And I think a lot of investors have that in their mind. And, and so, you know, they're looking at, well, you know, it's this, but you're going to have to sell it like a six and a half cap because interest rates are going to be at six. I'm like, mm. there's no way the market moves in, in, in that way. And so, sorry if that's like, if I got too technical, I don't, I don't no, know, no, no, but no. that's- I love, it. I love it. And actually what I'd like you to do, uh, because we have some uh, listeners definitely who understand this stuff, who are real estate investors understand, but we also have some folks that, you know, maybe are more focused on the corporate side. Maybe they'll- Yeah, of course. So just let, let's explain a fundamental term. Uh, what is a cap rate? Yeah, yeah, good. good Just for some of our listeners, in case they don't understand what that is, there's a couple ways to look at it. One, one, it's it's your yield on your investment. It's your un unleveraged yield on your investment, right? So if you had no debt on the property, you know, uh, and you you had a million dollars invested and you made a hundred thousand, it would be ten percent, right? Right. Uh, The other way to look at cap rate is, is it's it's like the inverse of the multiple. So if you're used to like a, a price to earnings ratio, I don't know what's the right way to explain that. I kind of look at it as the inverse of that. So if a cap rate, for example, is 5%, that means the multiple on, on each dollar is, is 20 X. 20. Right. 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 So like for every dollar I increase income, I'm increasing value 20 times. If the cap rate, if the cap rate's four, it's 25. Right. So if right. that makes sense. So, so it's really, uh, it's mostly used as a valuation metric. Right. And you can back into a, you know, an assumed rate of return, which is really right, you know, what it's showing. Yeah, yeah. So for the people who think from a corporate point of view, you know, it's really, you know, what's the expected. I mean, you know, you explained it better, but a simple way to say it is maybe is, you know, what's the expected return on your, you know, on your capital. Right. So, yeah, um, it, it is. And the beautiful thing about real estate is you can lever it. And then your, your return gets a, gets a lot better, right? Exactly, exactly. So, right, and, you, and, and the cap rate's the unlevered, right? So, yep, yep. so, so obviously, you know, as when you talk about like people buying at a three, what that means is that they're really, really tight, right? You know, like it makes- There's work not much deal. cash flow, right? There's That's what it means. There's not a lot of cash flow available, right? Yep. There's not a lot of leeway there. So for folks buying deals like that, interest rates going up could be- could Yeah, be because your, your margins are really thin, right? And, and right. so, because your biggest expense um, that's going to come after your, your NOI is, is that debt payment, right? And so, and, and that's really the only way to, uh, I mean, there, sure, there's other ways, but like the first way to screw up a real estate deal is, is default on your loan. Right. If you can pay your loan payment, you can usually live to fight another day, right? You can cut operating expenses. I mean, like I like I told you on some, on most of our properties, it's about a, a break even of like seventy percent occupancy. So you could lose thirty percent of your occupancy. You could drop your rents. I mean, you could do a lot of things to stay alive. And as long as you can make that loan payment, what what do we know? Every time we come out of a recession, well, there's kind of a culling of the herd, and, and and prices improve. And so, as long as you can make that loan payment, but the lower the cap rate, the tighter it's going to be. Yeah, totally. And you know, the other thing, going back to the conversation, I, I'm glad you pointed out that you know, some of the people get over fixated on one, you know, like interest rates, right? Yeah. And they and they make assumptions based upon that. Yeah. Of course, then the media plays into the fear and all that stuff. Yeah. Which drives me crazy. 
Um, but you well, know. here's, can I give you one, just one metric that, that we're, that we're looking at? So, so interest rates. So we, we had a couple, have a couple properties that we've had under contract since, uh, in the March timeframe and, and interest rates have moved a ton yep. since then, but rents have moved three or four times higher than right. interest rates. And so when you look at how those properties have been affected over time, I mean, we're, we're beating in a lot of cases, like our year two projections, when you look at income, because rents have grown. I mean, we, we were underwriting 4% rent growth, perhaps. And I mean, there's, we have one deal where rents have grown 20% on that property in that same time. And so it's just, yeah. I mean, we, you, that's why you, there's a lot of levers that, that can be pulled, right? And the thing about commercial real estate and the thing about rents is, is traditionally, and we're seeing it right now, is they move up with inflation, and, and we're, we're absolutely seeing that right now. Yeah. And that, that, that I'm glad you went in that direction because that, that's was the direction I was, I was thinking about as well. And, and especially, you know, and again, I'm not, you know, nobody can predict the future. We see what, how all these things play out. But, you know, right now, I mean, I, I read a statistic from last year into this year in big cities that rents were averaging 14% increases, right? Mm-hmm. And when you take into account that there are a number of big cities like New York and others have rent you know, stabilization restrictions on how much things can go up, yeah. which, which depress that you know, yeah. average, uh, it means the free market properties are going up way more than 14%, right? So you have, right. you have that, you have low unemployment, you have rising wages, so people can actually afford, you know, right? Yeah. Uh, higher rents and, and the inflation arguably. And again, I'm not, I don't want the listeners to think, you know, I, I understand that there are people who with gas prices and everything else going up who are, who are struggling. Um, so I don't want to minimize, you know, that. Um, but what I'm saying is there's a lot of other factors and you got to look at, you know, in, employment being high and employment going up. And, and listen, also, frankly, you know, it depends on what kind of, kind of properties you're in and what level, you know, your tenants. That's right. Are, right. That's you right. A hundred percent. Are you A buildings, uh, B buildings, C buildings? Uh, you know, are you, you know, dealing with, you know, I mean, if you're dealing with a lot of, Folks who, um, you know, who got hurt by the pandemic because they're in low end jobs, you know, or on their government programs. OK, maybe, you know, it's a different market than dealing with a middle class building or a higher end building. Yeah, I, I mean, but we're seeing uh, exactly like you said. I mean, I mean, just I, I give you an example. There, there's in Indianapolis where I am. I mean, there, there's a there's a, a massive industrial uh, complex uh, in the area. It's about 30,000 jo- warehouse jobs. Yep. And the. The, the wage in the last six months has gone from $18 an hour to $23 an hour there. I mean, and, and you see significant increases. And so I think that's a good thing. I mean, we're actually seeing uh, the wage, the wage inflation happening, not just kind of the price, asset price inflation, things like that. So with this much money out there, I don't know how we don't have inflation. I mean, I think it's, right. you know, I mean, it, and so I think that it's something that when you're in an inflationary environment, I think you just want to be invested in things that rise typically with inflation. I think what I'm telling everybody right now is like, look, invest with me, don't invest with me. Just please don't have your money sitting in a bank account right now while inflation is, is running at 8% because you're just losing out. Right, right, right. Because it's, it's just worth less and less. So let's talk yeah. about that a little bit because you, you say invest with me. One of the things that's, you know, it said in your bio is you help busy professionals scale and diversify their real estate portfolio with cash flow, wealth building assets. So let's clarify so the audience understands you know, what you do there. Is it just, is that focused on the investment opportunities that you provide for people in 
the deals you do or is there any training you do? Like, let's, let's talk about what that means. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great question. So I don't, I don't have any like formal training or coaching programs, but I, I put out a lot of educational content kind of between my podcast and videos and got a website, kentritter.com with, with things on there for new investors. But, but primarily, yeah, it, it's about the deals that, that we're bringing to market. You know, we're trying to bring, so I'm in the Midwest, we focus in the Midwest. So, so we're really focused on bringing, solid cash flowing deals, you know, um, it's like workforce housing, B and C class, multifamily, kind of just bread and butter stuff that, that we know no, no matter where we go up or down, like we're still going to cash flow, you know, yeah. we're still going to, we're still going to put money in your pocket quarterly. And that's really our, our primary focus. And then we know we hold, if we do it right and we hold it, for a, a, a good period of time, that appreciation will come too, but we're really cash flow focused. Yeah, love it. And, and listen, you know, for, you know, we have a decent segment of our audience who are entrepreneurs and business owners and um, maybe more so for the corporate deal stuff that we do. Uh, yeah. But I always encourage those folks, you know, one of the challenges of being an entrepreneur is that many, many of us have uh, most of our net worth and assets tied up in, our, in, in the value of a, in our business. Mm-hmm. And, and in the early days, I think that's important to do. I mean, I don't believe, you know, there's this talk about, oh, multiple streams of income, whatever. I remember yeah. somebody said, um, I'm trying to remember who it was, but I, I took some courses or something and I love the way they said it. They said, if you study most people, right? Yeah, at some point they get to multiple streams of income. But yeah. usually the way they have become successful is that they had one stream of income or one main area, right? Yep. You know, yep. they say, don't put your eggs in one basket. Realistically, what happens with most successful people is that they have their eggs in one basket. They treat that basket really, really well. Right. And then at some point when they get to a certain level, they start to diversify, you yeah. know, out uh, to, to de-risk, you know, that, that investment yep. takes itself off the table. And that's one of yep. the things I, I really encourage my my corporate folks and entrepreneurs to look at. And real estate's a great way to do that, you know, to, to diversify their risk and, and you know, yeah, find yeah. other ways to put their money to work. And my goal is, is to just make it totally turnkey for folks. So you get real estate exposure, you get all the tax advantages of being a direct owner, which means we're giving all the depreciation back to you, right? And you get to offset yep. your gains, but you don't have to do any, any of the work. And that's kind of like, I have, I have, I, Whenever I meet with an entrepreneur, another entrepreneur, I feel like we, we have kind of the same conversation where they're like, because they're they're usually looking at like actively getting into real estate, you know, being like, I'm going to go out and buy something here. And and I, I'm kind of where you're at. I'm like, look, if you already have a successful business and, and you already are creating a ton of value, like your highest and best use is going to be focusing on growing that business, not on trying to do something else in real estate too, because you know, you can go a mile in direct in one direction or like an inch in, in 20. Right. Um, and so like, that's what, that's where I think like we provide value. Cause it's like, we, we let you do that. Focus on what you're good at. Let us focus on real estate. That's what we're good at. We get you that exposure, that diversification. Everybody maximizes what they're doing. Everybody's in their, their, their highest and best use. Right. Yeah. And that's, a, you know, folks, uh, Kent and I have not had a conversation where I've used that phrase with him, but listeners know that highest and best use conversation is something I've repeatedly talked about on this podcast <laughs> and, and in my life because it's a fundamental, uh, not only thing that I talk about, but it's a fundamental principle in my life mm-hmm. is that I try to only do, you know, work every day to only work in my highest and best use areas. 
it's never 100% that way, but I keep striving, you know, uh, to get it from 80 to 85 to 90 to whatever. Um, and, uh, and, and, and then, you know, surround myself with people who are great at what they do that's, you know, are outside my house and bus series. So you, you are preaching to the choir with me and certainly with, you know, with, with, with some of our listeners, they've definitely heard this before. Um, so be- before I ask you my last two um, questions, because uh, we're coming to the end of time and I know we could talk forever about this stuff. Um, is there any last uh, thing you want to say in terms of whether it's any big lessons or more, what's happening in the market or thoughts, you know, you know, any, anything that would be valuable to our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we hit on a lot of good things. I, I, I guess my <laughs> my takeaway, I think, I think I already said it, is like this is a great time to invest in tangible, real assets. I'm sure there will also be buying opportunities from dips in markets and things, but like, so invest in something. Don't let your money sit in the bank account. That, that's my big thing. I mean, I know so many people that have their money in bank accounts because they just don't know what to do with it, and. I, I, like it's okay. It, it's been okay the past ten years. Uh, it, I mean, it's still a 0.05 interest rate, but right. it's, it's not okay now because I mean, if you think about, it, you're losing eight, eight and a half percent a year uh, on that money, and so there's a lot of good investment opportunities out there. Just, um, just find the you know, t- I guess take ownership to deploy your capital and take take ownership of your investments. Love it, love it. I I definitely believe in that. All right. So before I ask you my final question, I know you gave it quickly before, but, uh, you know, website or any other contact information so people can find out more about what you do and maybe, you know, yeah. learn a little bit from your content or uh, look at some of the deals you might have available for investment. Yeah. So if, if you go to kentritter.com, uh, you can you can see everything. So we do a weekly blog. We, we have, you know, the podcast is there. You can also find the podcast. It's called Ritter on Real Estate. It's, it, it's everywhere you listen to podcasts. It's up there, up there with Corey's, you know, uh, hopefully it's up there with Corey's and, um, yeah. And, and then we also have, if you're, if you're new to real estate investing, like, like one of the, one of the biggest barriers could just be like the jargon and terminology and, and kind of how these work. And so we, we've got fact sheets and, and terms and things on the website to help new investors just kind of, so when you're looking at deals, you understand what's going on and, and, and how the calculations work and things. So, so yeah, that, that's definitely the home base. Awesome. Awesome. So my final question on the podcast, Kent, is always about my highest value, my highest ideal in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom from all people around the world from oppression to uh, why I'm an entrepreneur and I haven't had a boss in in decades. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, what does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Yeah, I mean, freedom was really what drove me down this path uh, for real estate. I mean, it was, uh, you know, so we sold the consulting business and, and that was great, but we were I mean, I, I became an employee of the company we sold to. You know, I had my earnout that I had to, I had to go through that process. And and the thing about consulting is you travel constantly, right? And so that it was fine when I was single and I was just like jet setting. But when I when I got a wife and, and a couple of kids and now I have three small children, um, I I wanted to be there for them. I wanted to be around. I wanted to be there for the events. And so I, that's why I was really looking for something where I could create passive income uh, and be home. And, and now, I mean, I'm not passive. I'm very active in this, but but I still have the freedom because I'm my own boss to say, hey, it's nice out. It's two o'clock. Let's take the kids to the park. You know, I'm not chained to a desk somewhere. And so, so that's what it means uh, to me. It's like be the husband and father that that I really want to be. Love it, love it, Ken Ritter. Thank you so much for being a great guest on the Deal Quest podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.